welcome back to another episode of Educating My Black. Um, hopefully you are enjoying the season so far and hearing uh, the range of different voices that are coming forward. I know that I say this quite often, but this is one of my closest friends. Um, we've experienced a lot of similar things um, on the way through our career. And yes, yeah, a friend that we've just been in touch for years at this point, and I value her a lot. So I'm really grateful that she's taken the time to be on an episode um, of Educating Mar Black. She has got a phenomenal background, which I'm hoping that we get into and speak about a bit more in today's episode. So uh, her name is Jess, and we went to university together way back when at uh, the University of Scouseland, also known as University of Liverpool. <laughs> uh, we arrived in 2004. Um, we both were heads of societies and the nonsense was that we put our society days on at the same time so I was never able to go to hers she was never able to go to mine but we knew what each other was doing so Jess was involved in STAR student student action for refugees that's the one there you go student action for refugees and I was uh, president of the African Caribbean Society um, and yeah it was a lot of fun um, and Liverpool was weird and wonderful <laughs> throughout the time they were there so go on go on um I did Latin American studies which was a random degree that I ended up doing I hadn't initially planned to do that when I went to Liverpool I thought I was doing international development but I remember getting there and feeling like that course was a bit all over the place and then I met people who were doing Latin American studies and they're like you know what if you do this course you're guaranteed a year overseas and I was like right let me let me just switch course as you do (laughs) yeah when you're 19 and not uh, enough research before you've um, gone to university but um it was yeah a a really uh, yeah a a brilliant decision to do definitely Um, and I think actually yeah pushed me on my path to um to working in education like and this is one of those ones right I mean just even in that like anyone that's listening that's still yet to go to university just combine a language with it please just like leave the country for a year it will do you wonders it's fantastic um so Jess and I then left university same time we both applied for Teach First, were placed in random schools. Um, I remember going to see Jess in her school and it was just like a field. Like it was just the end of a, of a tube line, wasn't really much going on. And I remember Jess making the decision at the end of the first year of Teach First to say that, you know, I've got my qualified teacher status, I'm out, like I'm bouncing. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'll collect my paper and I'm gone. But that wasn't the last of Jess in education. Um, so went on to do multiple, multiple things, including going back to get a master's. Um, including working in multiple different um, NGOs. Uh, they called NGOs. Yeah, they are. But I think over your side, your side of the pond, they is like not for profit. Yeah, non governmental organisations. Right. Same thing. <laughs> um, and very, very much recently, um, has become a mother, yeah. and is taking that time to recalibrate and work out what to do um, moving forward. Which you know moving abroad, living abroad, which is something that Jess is very used to at this point, so it's not even a thing. Um, yeah, some of the stories that Jess has told me about living abroad. <laughs> Sorry. I, I have an image of um, your tent in the tree. <laughs> like, that thing's got blown away one day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's many stories. <laughs> that sounds random. That sounds so random. We can go into that. Many um, stories. I'm sure it will come, it will come out. Um, so yeah, over to you, Jess. I already can see that I'm laughing, so it's going to be a great episode. So yeah, um, Jess, how are you doing? I am good, actually. I'm good, I'm good. And actually, just um, when I was like preparing for this episode, I was thinking, okay, like, I'm going to talk about education. Like, what have I done? Where am I? And I always feel, because I've been out of like the UK 
classroom secondary school classroom for so long I was like oh man like have I got anything of, of relevance to say um, on this podcast but I think I think I do really? actually, <laughs> I was like oh I, I was like I've done a lot um not to like obviously I pick myself up but I have had quite a um I think varied past in education and you know in education it's not just about kids really quickly to throw in there like the whole education yeah. like, thing isn't just around like kids in a classroom in the UK I feel like but even just working in in education wholesale as you do internationally with the platform that you have yeah, you've got enough and and a very particular strand of conversation to pull out because not many of us have that experience of what it's like to do this work out of, out of the country but also out of like a British curriculum rigid kind of setting so yeah you've got enough. Yeah I guess maybe I could start with um just talking because we've talked about the university and just like going to Liverpool and that mm. um was for me um and again like people listening who who aren't at university yet or thinking about going into university I think it's just so important to do the proper research into where you're going because I think before I went to Liverpool I like I didn't know what a Russell group university was I was really quite um you know it was the first in my family to go to uni I was quite like I was like ill-informed and I really kind of just based it on um I don't know I guess I, I did some online research and like heard that like there was good nightlife in Liverpool so I was like this sounds good um <laughs> that was about it and actually the Liverpool that I thought um and I had this uh, before I'd gone to uni I'd worked um I'd worked had it taken a year out and I'd, I'd been working on on this boat randomly and I'd, I'd met this um uh, a guy from Liverpool from Toxteth and like he was you know like a black scouser and he was just telling me about this like Liverpool community and like what Toxteth is like and um he he didn't live in Liverpool at the time but you know that had been his place he'd grown up and so I I was imagining this really kind of like multicultural really diverse <laughs> city and when I got to Liverpool the University of Liverpool it was just like just the complete opposite um and even like I think even the town and the way it was set up it was still quite segregated um, in lots of ways I mean in my university course I think in our year cohort there, were, there weren't any people from Liverpool None. in the actual university <laughs> it was so bizarre and it was very very white and I ended up doing I ended up doing Latin American studies and I remember like, even just in terms of the curriculum like it wasn't until the fourth the year after my um, year abroad that we came back and we even touched on like discussions around slavery in the Americas which when I looked reflect back now I'm like oh my god that's so bad on a Latin American university degree that it, it didn't come up in the curriculum like the kind of the legacy of slavery in in the formation of like the Americas and yeah so do your research and also Brilliant. just because something's a Russell group doesn't necessarily mean it's excelling in your particular area or field of study especially at undergraduate level. Uh-huh multiple things that you just said that I think probably needs to like just even be splendid on just then like the idea that a Russell Group University is great on name and it's great on paper but it's also a very colonial institution because it's a Russell Group and so when you then start doing degrees like ours like Latin American studies and also I did history of politics like my history first year was very bland <laughs> very what it was Year two, I the, the irony, I guess, is what I'm getting at is that and it's just 
Liverpool um, has a, a slavery museum, like which is phenomenal, like uh, in the city. Um, it's oh, it's the Tate um, slavery museum. So Tate and Lyle Sugar, Sugar, one of the commodities that was created uh, on the plantations and enslavement. So you know, there's a whole link there with that. But I remember that my history options in year two involved a hell of a lot of like Caribbean and, and American um, enslavement conversations, which is why I guess I'm so knowledgeable about it. But what's so striking from what you're saying is how perhaps it's just because there was a lecturer who that was his interest. And because I found interest in those, I chose those modules. But if there wasn't someone in history that was interested in doing that, if there wasn't someone in politics who had been to Jamaica, a white woman who lived in Jamaica for a while, so she had a, po- a module called Jamaican Politics, I was like, oh, I think I'll sign up. Um, in essence, what I'm getting Yeah, at, I did like, that module. Did we- right? I think we must have did it at different times, but yeah, it was a it was a great module, great module. Um, but I think it's 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 the fact that you're making that. I think there's a trade off, perhaps that sometimes going to Russell Group universities is great because it's Russell Group, and all of that that comes with it. But at the same time, Russell Group universities, by virtue, are so rigidly institutional that you're not always finding yourself represented in the modules and the courses that they offer. Um, and so oftentimes, yeah, the, the lens of like, let's look at enslavement to Latin America. These things don't often involve themselves in these degrees. So yeah, there's a bit of a trade-off with that which is a Russell group because it's a Russell group and that which is like, where do I then see myself? Which is why this whole decolonizing the curriculum thing, it's an uphill journey. Definitely, and we need to be on it. And it's so interesting because now I'm, so now I'm doing my PhD at the University of East London which is I would say like the complete opposite to in terms of an institutional my experience within that institution compared to um, Liverpool University and it may be obviously I'm, I'm coming back as a mature student um, but first of all it's in, in terms of like the ethnic makeup of the student population it's uh, 70% um, black Asian minority ethnic um, we have um, a black academy which is we have the highest proportion of black educators, black lecturers in the UK, um, and they formed this academy to really, it's just been such an eye-opening and actually kind of like, I would say like wonderful space in terms of the discussions that we're having in terms of decolonizing the curriculum, but also like the kind of critical reflections on things like in the, in the UK, we have the, well, it's in some places it's called the attainment gap, but in our university, we call it the degree awarding gap because Uh the onus is really on the on the institution on the student like why do we have this gap and really unpacking that and and looking at the you know the types of curriculum that are being taught the ways that um students are being assessed um there's a lot of work around kind of um unconscious biases and how that comes up in the university context um but yeah, just um, yeah, it's completely different because the, the four, I did my I did three years degree, well four years at, um, degree. One year was at Cuba in Cuba, but the three years in Liverpool, I didn't have a single black lecturer. Um, the whole you know the whole time, I don't think there was a black lecturer in the University of Liverpool. I don't think is, there was. <laughs> and it's a huge institution, and I really I really hope that's changed because um, again, when we look at like the people, young people going through the through their kind of education experiences I can definitely see you know if you don't see that representation um we're not going to have we're not going to increase the pool of um black academics um which is such a shame 
but actually on the flip side there are, there are lots of brilliant people kind of working to address this and stuff around like transforming the ivory tower and yeah um, um, I'm optimistic but yeah it's surprising in 2020 that we're still such a um, minority within academic spaces in the UK. The black population by its number uh, is in higher education by a greater proportion than other racial groups so yeah it's it's interesting the kind of messages that perhaps that we get around where we need to go the degrees that we need to do that we need to have more and more you know the whole nonsense of like twice as hard for half as much all those things like kind of play out in the education system but yet the things that you're talking about still persist like not represented at that level as much at 100% agree like the onus is on the university to award not the student to close a gap that has been you know that data would also suggest that uh, grade suppression is a real thing both at schooling uh, for GCSE and also at university Um, so yeah anonymous and blind marking and whatever else has gone some way to alleviate some of that but there still is for example if I'm coming with resources that are perhaps um from an, an indigenous group of people or like from a different canon or a different perspective and you are the person who's written the course from your own book you know how much of a grade are you going to award me from having my own personal experiences versus what you're going to say your personal experiences are so yeah that's also there you've already given like so many gems and there's a well of information um and experience too so I, I wonder where to begin, like if, if through the decisions that you've made, both to go into education, i.e. teaching, um, to leave teaching, but then stay in education, um, to do a language even, like, and then PhD and then all the other wonderful things that you've done so far, has a, a Black identity informed any or many of those decisions? And in what way has it done so? Mm, great question. Um, yeah, yeah, I'd say it's informed every, probably, <laughs> yeah, every decision. Um, when I think, so doing, so moving my degree to Latin American studies, and I, I, one of the reasons I did that is because I wanted a year abroad, and I really wanted, um, yeah, I really wanted to put myself in in a different context to, to the context in which I'd grown up in um, and as part of my degree um, we had the option yeah as with Spanish to, to go to go anywhere in the Spanish-speaking world and I chose Cuba um, because for me I, it was um, just a place which I'd you know read um, quite a lot about um, and it just sounded fascinating like this idea of this um yeah, just going to a place where, which first of all, they'd, they'd come out with this state, well, Fidel Castro had come out with a statement after the revolution saying that he'd, um, you know, uh, I think he's like obliterated um, racism, saying like the like 1963, he was like, yeah, we sorted this all out in Cuba, no more racism. And I was like, wow, this is, this is fascinating. As somebody who'd grown up um, in, so I, I was born in London, but moved to West Wales when I was quite young. And so I'd gone from growing up in a very, obviously like London, very diverse place to a very, very white space. And I think for me, I again, that's why I was so disappointed with Liverpool. I was like, why? what the hell, man? I just tried to get out of West Wales. And, 
<laughs> like, what is this? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> Not what I ordered. I was definitely craving um, a place like where where I would where I would just blend in, and sure. um, Cuba um, was definitely that place um, for me at, at that time in my life. Um, yeah, so that I mean, again, blackness. That was what that was. That was probably the reason why I chose Cuba, as opposed to some people in my course who like chose to go to Spain. Which obviously, Spain. I've been to Spain many times. Great country, but if you have the choice, of like I mean, a year in the Caribbean. Honestly, or... <laughs> come come. <laughs> yeah, um, and when I was there, it, it was just so interesting as well. Just looking at things like curriculum from a, like from the, the way, obviously, the Cuban perspective, and at the time, it, it still is obviously a socialist country, but. Um, I remember um, just realizing, I think, how politicized like my education had been up until that point, and how much I didn't know. Um, and so I was in the university, and I remember when people were like, "Oh, right, yeah, like so you're from the UK. Um, what do you think about the miners' strike? Uh, you know, how has that affected you know your you know what, how how do they teach you about this?" And I was like, "I don't, I don't know about the miners' strike. I've been taught about this." And um, I was taking classes on like. Um, African art history, um, on Afro-Cuban culture, um, and just, yeah, I think it was a real um, awareness of, like, how limiting my education had been up until that point, and of course, like, every country, education is political no matter where you are, but I think, and that's not to say that the system in Cuba, education system is faultless, but it really, really opened my eyes. Um, and the other thing it really opened my eyes to was this amazing um, approach they had to um, education internationally. Um, and they had this whole, well, they had since since the Cuban revolution of 59, this idea of um, trying to um, end illiteracy. And so they trained, they sent teachers from, from Cuba, but then later on doctors to different parts of the world as a kind of, um, to stand in solidarity with with countries in the global south um, and so I, I ended up living in student residence with people who were on scholarships from all over the world from Haiti from Venezuela nice. from Guinea from Malawi um, pe young people who were like really criticized and really opened my eyes up to just yeah some of the global challenges I guess like international development but from a, a kind of global south led perspective and that really, I think, planted the seed in me wanting to go into education, but also thinking, actually, I want to do this. Um, I want to do this internationally. Like, I want, of course, there's, there's definitely needs in the UK within, like, you know, our communities, but thinking that maybe I could do something overseas. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, led led me on my journey to, to teach first. Uh, and then from teach first um, to my master's, led me to do a placement with... Um, uh, education organization in Israel which was working with African um, asylum seekers in Israel um, and this is way back in oh god like 2010 2010 2009 mm -hmm. um, but I, I went out there and um, yeah uh, kind of started working in the refugee education system and I've pretty much done that ever ever since that's freaking awesome like I do not even want to say anything because it's just like I just want to hear more and more and more <laughs> um and then so in terms of like your your PhD and like if you want to if, if you feel comfortable talking a bit more about the master's and the PhD because obviously you've gone back into education to be educated yourself um twice since um and your master's was an interesting one and where you did it was also quite interesting and then now you've got the PhD 
uh, to come. Like, has has that been influenced by identity in any way? Yeah, identity you know, influences everything. But um, so my masters, so I was doing teach first, and I mean that is also like just such a when I reflect on that experience. Um, I with age and wisdom I'm like wow I would have handled this so differently now um so yeah the, I mean the whole well where to begin so teach first I'll start with that um after coming back from Cuba and being be, like I've been around all these like young politicized like activists who are working in education in their own community um I'd been I you know I'd, I'd been living with somebody who'd been involved in the Brazilian like landless movement which is a whole movement around getting yeah, people you know farmers and uh, they call it like peasants <laughs> I'm trying to think of the like English translation but but yeah people without um uh, yeah people who were working on the land um in Spanish it, or in uh, Portuguese it's not derogatory so much to call someone uh, a peasant yeah anyway move on because <laughs> I'm thinking <laughs> this is what happens in languages sometimes and you're like oh actually yeah in English direct translation it's, it's rude <laughs> so I'd been living with all these people who are very, very much education in their own countries and so when I came back and found out about Teach First um, I think you might have told me about it, Marlon, actually. Um, I, I thought I really wanted to work on educational disadvantage. It was my own route coming up into, high, um, into higher education. Like I'd been a widening participation student. I'd done, right. um, whilst at uni, like we both worked on this scheme called Aim Higher, which was trying to get people from non-traditional backgrounds into higher education. So I felt, yes, this is this is something that I, could, I really want to do. And I picked, um, I, I had the option of doing languages, but I wanted to do this subject new subject at the time called citizenship which was all around kind of like politics and um yeah politics and, and making people aware or discussing kind of like global issues um and so obviously I was really happy when I got through um and then I remember when I got the letter where they tell you where your place and I was like oh man this isn't gonna work because it was it was on the like outskirts of London and there was no public transport route to get there so I was like how am I going to get to this school and I was like okay I'm gonna have to move um um yeah I, it just <laughs> obviously with teach for people there is this kind of drive you know you should be willing to go anywhere and teach anyone and of course but um at the same time it was um I feel like maybe the people who were placed in that school were potentially already privileged or living at home and had could afford to have cars and could drive there and you know when you're doing teach first straight after uni like I, I didn't have the, these kind of resources to go out and buy a car and, and drive to this place um it was also in an area so when we so then we moved to um to uh to be near the school um, and I remember like, the, like my second day I got this leaflet through the post and it was from it was like um, the National Front were um, uh, were campaigning to be on the local council there and like so the National Front for people who are not from the UK is like our most extreme right um, it was at the time now yeah, Britain first was. conservatives let's be real but yeah, the yeah time now it's now <laughs> But I was like, wow, okay, this is the area. This is, this is, at the time it was still quite shocking. Like there was a, a National Front presence um, in, again, in naivety perhaps, but I didn't realise that, you know, National Front were really still a political force. For real. Um, 
but I mean all of that aside um I remember part of the scheme is that you have like a training you have like a mentor or you're kind of yeah you have like a you, you know you're learning on the job so you're, you're often mentored by somebody you'll be assigned a teacher who's going to like support you an experienced teacher in that kind of subject area uh, and the school hadn't really touched on it before um and so I had like a mentor who who was the actually like the cooking teacher so I didn't have like this technical guidance I didn't have somebody and she was also very near retirement and she was very um feeling quite oh, anyway she wasn't very happy with being in this school which was also quite a bizarre school it was sponsored by a football club um and so students had to take the GCSE options in year eight um so really bizarre context and I think looking back now um I would have if that happened now uh, and having been in like kind of leadership positions and managerial positions I would have said straight away look you need to put me in a different school because I am here as a trainee and I need to have um I need to have people here who are able to support me that I'm able to learn like six weeks of teacher training uh, and suddenly you're, you're asking me to be like the curriculum lead and not giving me the tools or resources or space to do that um, or support. Um, so I did, uh, I did spend a year there and I remember just, um, yeah, I just remember it was a really challenging year. And, um, but I do think but towards the end, like, like definitely made strides in terms of all the, you know, all the stuff like classroom management and um, kind of managing this workload, but, um I just felt at the end of the year like I was like I'm too I'm too young to be this this stressed and um actually this is not I'm not learning in this context like it is quite an unsupportive environment and um I had I'd, I'd started to look around and, and decided that actually my heart was in kind of doing education and international development that is where I had to take that leap I got a scholarship to do a master's so I I left but um yeah it was definitely a big lesson and something now that I I think I, I've learned so much from and I'm much more I think when you're younger you often put yourself in you often are afraid or I was definitely afraid to like speak up or speak truth to power whereas now I'm like this is not an acceptable situation I'm a trainee I need support you better put me in a school where I'm actually where citizenship is part of the curriculum and not expect me to kind of navigate not only um, a classroom but also politics of the organization of a of a school which doesn't particularly want this subject and yeah and not the nonsense so, of like because you passed therefore like you know well done the best came to the top and like that was always intended by us putting you into a freaking sharks then and being like swim your way out of it that you swam your way out of it is exactly what it's about you know the top the top rises and like the best like just to stop the nonsense just stop the nonsense there's no support in this situation that I managed to escape the situation is not because of your help it's because I then had to make decisions on my own yeah let's not pretend as though putting people to work in tough challenging schools is path for the course of like success it doesn't have to be like that it just doesn't have to be like that so yeah it's quite interesting as well, like reflecting on the teacher training component like that we definitely expect, well, I say we, like, because we were in the same cohort, but mm. where that the types of things that were talked about. Um, and that year, boy. That, yeah, the, the way that we were 
like the yeah, beginning. So I remember one of our first training sessions, they showed a video of, I think it's like Michelle Pfeiffer and she goes into a castle. I can't remember mm-hmm. what the film is, mm-hmm. but um, is it like Dangerous Minds? Some, some foolishness, some, some nonsense. Yeah, that was one. They also showed The Wire was the other one. Yeah, so the way the way that it was, I mean, this, the, the way race was just not actually talked about at all, but was so, oh my gosh, it was like the biggest elephant in the room. So in our co- cohort, I think, that I, I don't know, there was maybe like 200 of us. Um, I think there was myself, there was one other um, black mixed race woman, and then there was like maybe two black guys it was I was one of three there were three of us across the whole oh. of the London cohort there was th- <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't know there was like a few like I don't know about three um I don't know Asian girls like it was just so undiverse and the fact that they were then placing these people and often many of the people were from extremely privileged backgrounds like in my the school I ended up going to the, the other trainee teachers they'd all gone to private school um, many of them were like kind of Oxbridge or Russell Group backgrounds. They've had actually no interaction with people outside of their um, quite privileged and elite um, socioeconomic groups. And they were then placed in these schools. Um, there was no discussion around like kind of power or None. <sighs> like um, even like kind of like cultural like pedagogies. Like it was very much like these people you're going to teach know absolutely nothing you are an exceptional graduate and um, you are there to give them everything because they have nothing. I don't know, like the message, it was very, very strange. No, you're right, fully right. I don't even want to sugarcoat it because all of that has had an impact like legacy-wise. So yeah, fully. I don't know if you, well, you must remember the summer that we had, it was our, um, we had three weeks in London and then we had three weeks in Canterbury. And I can't remember if it was the London week or the, it might have been the Canterbury week, the fourth week in. And we had this lecturer, yeah, it was then. We had uh, this black woman that came in to speak about diversity in the workplace and they split us up by cohort. So it was like London in one and then it was like the rest in another. And for us, like, it was functional. Like if you're from a racialized background, just kind of like, yep, yep, mm-hmm. Got it. Like there was nothing that was new on this particular slide. Mm. Although I guess perhaps maybe at the age now I can appreciate it. It might I might have felt a bit more validated because it's like, oh, like there are studies behind some of the stuff that I've experienced, like being first in family to go and blah, 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 blah. And then I remember that others came in to have the same training. I remember that we heard that it popped off, like it got shut down, that they had to end the, the session early because people were berating the woman, the black woman who's presenting around race and diversity and challenging her on the stats, challenging her on, on racism, challenging her on definitions, challenging like, like, are you sure that that's happened? Um, I've got an issue with the stats. I and then there was a thing about her credibility to be a presenter on that topic that also came up. And it was just so interesting to see like the Londoners who pretty much like a lot of us were from London and we're just like, yeah, we're going back on to go and teach handled that particular conversation versus those perhaps kind of what we're talking about, you know, may not have come from London or have had a very closed, bubbled experience of who they've met along their way. Um, and then it's hearing about, so this is this also exists in, in this leafy UK system that we live in, like England also have these issues and these problems. I don't think that's the England that I know about. So perhaps you're wrong. England is, you know, this utopian country where as we now have, 
we're apparently the least racist and we're the least this and the least that. And so all of that comes from a place. And yeah, 2009, our training, we also had The Wire, which was our way into talking about race, which was to not talk about it, but to show videos about it, much like let's just show Roots as <laughs> a unit on enslavement because we don't want to talk about it, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's all of the absence of conversation, but there was definitely elephants in the room. There were definitely elephants yeah. in the room in the conversation. I remember then there's one last story that I remember one girl must have turned around and said, I'm sure I told you about this in my small group. Um, it, yeah, because it was the same day we were, we were debriefing this thing. And she goes, um, you know, the thing is, like, um, I'm from Brighton, so I know how to deal with the gays. I just don't know how to deal with the blacks. <laughs> we're just like, <laughs> and she went off into her career to go teach in Lewisham and told the oh, kids good luck she then goes um I think she must have given the kids one sanction and she said to them um you can be my little slaves for the day and pick up stuff on like pick up the whatever from the classroom floor it's like sorry so the red flag that was that comment in our small group you still decided that my girl was ready and then you put her in a place like Lewisham where yeah. it's like what are you doing for those kids also what are you doing you know if you have to have duty of care for everybody where's her duty of care because she's not ready to go into that setting as much as the kids deserve more so yeah no that that cohort 09 cohort was wild thank you for bringing me back for a minute yeah I just hope teacher training has picked up since then and I, I I'm I imagine especially this year with the conversations that's in the UK are finally coming to the service that mm. a lot of a lot of these things cannot be avoided just in terms of like yeah just being aware of people's own identities also like having like conversations with trainee teachers about their own kind of like personal world are they in a place where they are ready to go into a classroom and, yeah. and potentially have to navigate really really um you know complex conversations especially as many of the teachers i know from our co cohort probably didn't have like the racial literacy to do that 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 was kind of seen as not important um even things around like emotional literacy like it takes i don't know years to, to get to a place where you feel like you're able to maybe navigate some of these conversations and that, that was completely like kind of brushed yeah. um under the carpet um so having worked in the uk classroom i thought you know what i'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna go elsewhere and i and i i guess i was like naive in thinking um like in the kind of education, international development, education space, like these issues wouldn't um, wouldn't be there, but actually they were uh, and they are. And I think it's only now that we're even starting to have conversations in, in education, well, in international development, but particularly education, which kind of scratched the surface on kind of race, ethnicity, intersectional identities and how that, um, comes up in the projects that uh, that the organisations implement, mm. the way that organisations recruit, like who are the people who are in these headquarters um, making these decisions. So yeah, it's a slow, slow journey. So then in with all of the spaces that you've been in, both geographically, both the rooms that you're in that not a lot of us get to see what happens behind the scenes. You know, you've mentioned refugee education, um, working internationally across a whole bunch of different stakeholders who've got different competing aims. 
there must be some like formative experiences or lessons that you've learned from um, along the time that just kind of stick in your mind as being like, that was interesting <laughs> or that's kind of uh, guided perhaps where I go from here. Oh man, so, <laughs> like so many lessons and actually that's probably what's led me now to do my PhD. Um, so I, um, my PhD is looking at young people's experiences of education in emergency contexts and by, so education emergencies is like this whole sub-sector within um, the humanitarian space which looks at or stands for ensuring that regardless of where you are whether it's you're growing up in a refugee camp or you you know like something like Mozambique happens a natural disaster regardless of you know where you are what your migration status is you have the right you know you have the human right to, to access education and what often happens in these contexts is that um the government can be overwhelmed um and that's when uh NGO or not-for-profit not can come in and um either directly implement the education within that context or partner with local civil society organizations to do that um and um yeah so <laughs> um again go coming from coming from i guess teaching the uk to that space and seeing the way like race and identity wasn't a conversation in the uk i was really I think surprised well maybe not surprised but yeah I guess it was a bit disheartening to see that also in a in a space like international development and education it also wasn't a conversation um and so for example um looking at young people's experiences within the international um education space education emergency space there is this real um because the needs are so great, because there's, you know, like, there's like 75 million children living in conflict-affected um, settings. Um, what I would frequently hear is we've, we've got to just get the primary school access. Like this is critical, making sure that people have literacy and numeracy skills and just getting that basic education down. Um, and I obviously coming from a secondary education background, I'm, I was always pushed back a little bit on this and saying, well, yeah, but we also need to take care of like the adolescents, like the teenagers, sure. they, they need to do something like the average displacement takes last for 10, 10 to 17 years. So that's the whole of your education lifespan. So what, we're only going to provide education up until what, they're 11 or 12 and then what? And this really... I've worked for a number of different organisations um, and uh, UN agencies and this conversation would, would just frequently come up in every single space and it got me really thinking like why is this and again this is my opinion <laughs> um, but I really think this has to do with like legacies of like colonialism and like colonial education and we know that like under definitely the British but also the French um, there was an edu colonial education system in place which meant you know, you'd only be educated to a certain degree um, and that was kind of good enough. So I'd often be in like education emergency spaces and people say, oh, you know what, they don't need secondary school education. What they need is technical and vocational training. Right. Um, and then I would go to, like I did this um, a research evaluation a couple of years ago in Uganda in this refugee camp where there are, I don't know, there was 100,000 people in this refugee camp 
Um, the people they were from South Sudan um, and a number of different countries, Ethiopia, DRC, um, and there was one secondary school in a camp which for a hundred where hundred thousand people lived. There was one secondary school which had like I don't know one hundred and fifty places, and all of the organisations that I was talking to were like going, yeah, what they need is like technical vocation education, edu- educational training. Um, and when I spoke to the young people, they were like, you know what, actually they were doing this um, accelerated primary class um, course. And they were saying, you know, were saying like, what, what, what would you, what are your kind of aspirations? What do you want to do? And they all said, I want to go to secondary school. Um, and so there's this real disconnect between what people in these crisis actually want and what is actually being provided for them. Um, and there's a whole load of, ex- I think, excuses as, you know, the sec- secondary school is more expensive, you need specialised equipment, you need to have, like, qualified teachers to teach this, and uh, teaching is, teaching personnel, um, you know, there's a real shortage in many um, conflict affected communities. But for me, yeah, I, it really does come back to this idea of, yeah, um, basic education is enough for some people. <laughs> I think um, you're right. I do think you're right. I and even just from a historical legacy there's the whole understanding of I will teach you enough for you to be functional for me but I ain't teaching you beyond that because you're not trying to challenge me out here so if I can still hold education over you um even thinking about the history of education why we educated girls as a legacy you know why we educated like you know free schools and why that came about you know missionary Christendom and why they educate like all roots kind of go back to that conversation regarding you know you can do education one way but um yeah not beyond that so fully 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 agree real quick then in that in that same in that same vein are there any uh near misses or cock-ups that come to mind regarding your experience oh my god so many like <laughs> <laughs> near misses or um oh wow yeah I guess um yeah I think there's probably been lots of lots of times where I've had to like really reflect on like what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and making sure that um being very aware I think of who I am, um, where my positionality is and what that allows me to do. And also, yeah, no, I think definitely in the past couple of years, I've really um, acknowledged, um, okay, I guess my privilege within the international development education emergency space. Um, I, for years, I was always quite, I think, um, it really frustrated me that I was perhaps like the darkest person in the room and I'm like I am mixed race like hang on <laughs> like in the, in international development where we're talking about education projects for um we're, we're working on education responses for uh, in in the global south with people from you know like why is it that the this space looks the way it does um and I remember feeling like quite um invisible overlooked in that space but actually I guess more recently I've I've recognized okay why I've been allowed to be that person in the room you know I definitely don't feel like I've got a seat at the table but I recognize that because of who I am and my positionality that's given me like a foot in the Mm -hmm. door um, where so many other people haven't got that 
And so I mean, people who are more qualified than me should be in, in some of these spaces making decisions. Um, so I guess, um, I think my, I guess one of my, I guess my cock ups then is probably not realizing that earlier and being more vocal about it. Um, and now that I guess I am aware of that, um, it's so I use what little increments I do to really kind of drive drive that message home. And so one of the things we've done in organisations, say the Children UK is I've been really, well, um, some amazing colleagues of mine um, set up um, a uh, BAME network um, a couple of years ago. And that has been for me like a real, um, it's been really great to see how coming together um, the few of us within that organization have been able to really, really push for change internally. Whereas I think when you're, and that's why I, I really appreciate the power of networks. And I think people who are feeling like isolated in their workspaces, like set up that network or start those conversations because um, I think, again, so cliche, but to get together, we are stronger. Right. So one of the things, one of the things that we did was work on a position paper. Um, we did lots of kind of like qualitative interviews with different staff um, and how they were feeling and came up with kind of like a plan, like you need to get like get your house in order because this is just not acceptable. Um, just from our office perspective, we were in the most diverse city in the world. And yet we've got like, I don't know, 3%, very, very low. Um, yeah, um, within the organization, it's just so undiverse. There was exactly, there was nobody in the senior executive position of color. There's nobody um, um, in any kind of leadership role who was black, yet we are supposed to be um, mm -hmm. the voice, well, the voice, but we are supposed to be working with, um, uh, and trying to address kind of inequalities in oh, like 140 contexts. Um, so yeah, um, I think yeah, I don't yeah. I guess my yeah my key thing is like networks, networks, powerful. Um, You've given us three in one, like legit. Because I feel like from just to perhaps like wrap it up in in that what you said is like if it's if it is a cock up, and I don't always think it is. It's like realizing that your privilege in your blackness sometimes has it's positional right there's positional privilege mm -hmm. fully agree with you I definitely have been the poster child for teach first multiple occasions you would see me on every bloody like poster going around for teach first for a while until I realized that actually I need to do something more with that position rather than just being photographed like what I'm actually saying um but then the part that you also say which is around knowing that there's strength in number I think also helps us to take up our blackness in spaces um mm. so that we're not the only one it's no longer myopic it's not like a zero-sum game in some spaces where it's like if there's two blacks one of us has to be like adversarial towards the other none of that nonsense it's actually like mm. let's come together um and I think perhaps you know to ask to ask this question um is there a role that you think that you play in advocating for blackness in in pushing forward blackness in certain spaces, perhaps in what you said that you you enter into spaces that not everyone gets access to. So therefore you're able to even at least listen in on a conversation that's been had and feeding that back as to like, what does that teach us as a marginalized group of people? What can we learn from the conversations had in spaces that we're not always in? Um, I definitely think, um, 
well again this is I, I like to think that I am doing that um one I guess one of the things um I guess it's like the dual I don't know if it's like the dual consciousness but mm. the fact is um I the fact that I have a British passport the fact that English is my first language um the fact that you know I am um black mixed race which in the UK definitely gives you it's kind of like the palatable face um and perhaps I am no not perhaps definitely privy to kind of conversations that people maybe would not be having um with uh, with other people like mm. definitely gives me that lens of um privilege and but also I think com- with that comes responsibility mm. so one of my one of the things I really I noticed early on again when I was going to these um when I was working overseas um in for these organizations is like this like horrendous power and racial uh, imbalance in terms of leaders leadership um positions in in these um like country offices where who were kind of supposedly responsible for implementing these education um positions um i think actually like, i don't know if you've read like apple hirsch's british but mm-hmm. she talks about like this kind of like expat bubble um and how you know you could be in somewhere like uh, i don't know working in a place like South Sudan where um, you you would find or I would find I'd be in these spaces so um, I'd go to these meetings um, to talk about education and all of the project leaders were white were expat um, there'd be kind of like after work drinks mm-hmm. which were also tended to be all white spaces mm-hmm going to these places and seeing that you know oh so many things but seeing that um the various people who are advocating and apparently training colleagues on like how to be you know how to have equal equality in the classroom were not actually practicing that in person um and I think with that you know when when I've most recently been working with um, my organization's network highlighting um racism in the workplace it's so important to not just think about it in the uk context but also think about how um that plays out overseas the fact that um most um ngos and governmental organizations in africa don't have african leadership Mm -hmm. is shocking the Mm. fact that there's this language the language that people use like national and international staff um people also saying things and under this language um you know voicing quite like well basically racist ideologies but Mm. it's kind of accepted because you know that's the lingo that people use so like it's um it's a lot so it's a lot and so I guess my my responsibility and something that I've always advocated for is to try to point that out um as much as possible which can be quite isolating um it's definitely one of the reasons why I found myself coming back to the UK that I didn't want to be I got tired in those spaces and those conversations Mm -hmm. and quite isolating as well uh in some ways um but it's also one of the reasons why I'm now doing my um PhD to kind of expose (laughs) I want to expose this and really highlight um highlight the state of you know the current state of play love that perfect so then, to, to close, any reflections that you might have for others who might wish to go in your path, um, and that's the path of like international development, um, using the education to do that, or leaving the classroom even, 
um, or using their positionality to speak up um, in places where they have access to that others might not? What reflections might you give to other people? Um, I, so in terms of getting into education and international development, I think um, I'm, I'm in such a space now where I really, I really question international development as, as a concept and as, you know, starting, I think, especially this. This year, people were talking more like, "Why? Why do we have international development? We should just be calling. We should just be calling for reparations because that's mm. that's what's needed." I like that. Um, um, and so, I would really advise people to really question like why they're getting into it, um, but to know that to think that you know that I think black educators have a, such a huge role and should have such a huge role in those conversations in those relationships and can bring so much to the table so not to be um not to be put off basically um and that things are i think improving in terms of networks there's more so even if you're getting into it and you're feeling isolated um reach out to those networks um online um because you will need a support system to get through um, and then also always to be aware to be aware of what your I think also like your passport what that brings in those spaces mm. what you may not you may not be used to being viewed as a privilege in a privileged position but in many contexts you will be privileged and to, to acknowledge that and um, and just kind of just try not to do I always think of like animal farm like you just don't want to end up like the pigs at the end, no. like all <laughs> mimicking the very behaviour uh, that yeah. you um, you know fighting have been fighting yeah. to address. Fully, fully, fully. Sis, thank you. That has been awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me on this and getting your voice out there. Well, thank you for thank you for having me. It's uh, yeah, all of these things. I feel like I could just talk and talk about uh, for ages. Um, so, yeah, it's been a real pleasure this very early morning for you. Um, <laughs> but this afternoon for me, like, yeah, to, to, to sit okay. back and uh, choose a chat a little bit about... Um, boom, boom. Right. Cannot boom. wait for people to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.